Remember that we, we're dealing with a covenant document. Moses is at the right at the Jordan River. The people of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. And he's telling them how they can both take the land and keep the land. And so he drafts a document in the form of a covenant, just like a second millennium secular covenant would be. And he uses the same form, suzerain king telling the vassal kings how this relationship is going to go. First thing that he tells them is the prologue, historical prologue. This is who the parties are. And so he recites what they've done and what God has done, reminding them that they are unreliable because of historical episodes and that God is reliable. And then beginning with chapter 4, verse 44, all the way through the end of 26, he gives them what's known as the stipulations of the covenant. These are the arrangements by which we're going to live. These are the commandments. And we're right in the middle of that. Now, the first part of that, chapter 444, through the end of 11, are what we call the general stipulations. Fear God, obey God, love God, etc. And now with chapter 12, we began the specific stipulations going all the way through 26. When we get to 27, we'll have the sanctions. Here's what difference it makes. You'll be blessed if you obey. You'll be cursed if you disobey. And then we'll see the final closing witness documents and so on. But now we're in the specific stipulations. Now what's interesting in these specific stipulations is that Moses goes through roughly in the order of the Ten Commandments. Uh, chapters 12 and 13 generally have to do with commandments 1 through 3. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 have generally to do with the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath. And that's where we are now. And on and on it goes through the rest of the specific stipulations. So what we're dealing with now are specific stipulations that are tied to the fourth commandment, which you remember is keep the Sabbath holy which is an incredibly important commandment even in our own day. Now, what we get here in chapter 15 is an aspect of the Sabbath that most people don't think about. Usually, we think about the Sabbath, understandably, as primarily the rest that we receive, physical rest and spiritual rest before the Lord. We're supposed to learn how to seek that and find it. You remember that the Sabbath also has to do with the land. The land receives its Sabbaths. Every seventh year, the land is to be rested. It's a holy land. But what we often don't think of is that the Sabbath is also a land, uh, is also uh, a principle of rest for the poor. That even when the land gets its rest, the Sabbath are gleaning on that year of rest on the land. And if you look into the Old Testament, you will find that there are several principles by which the poor are relieved. You remember that the landowners were told not to glean, this is in another part of the scriptures, told not to glean the outer regions of their fields. Why? So the field, so the poor can glean it. They were told not to glean all the grapes off their vines. Why? So the poor could come and glean it. Uh, we were told that not only is there to be a Sabbath every week and then a Sabbath year every seven years for the land, but every 50 years is to be called what, the, what is known as the Jubilee. When all the land returns to its original assigned tribal owners. 
so that all ownership is temporary. So that if you were successful and able to buy lands, you only would own it until the Jubilee year, and then it reverts to the original family. Now, why? Well, because if your grandfather or your father didn't do so well or, or squandered his property, you're not stuck in generational poverty. And God had a solution for generational poverty. He reversed it every 50 years and put everything back on an equal footing. Then we're going to see in this text that we're going to read, there were two other provisions for the poor. And we're going to see why it's so important. And as is usual, when we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy, the, the challenge will be for us that we have to be sure we're lifting out of the Old Testament covenant into today's times, how to put this into effect. That's our challenge. And those of you in small groups, you should be talking about this. How do I put this into effect? I'll give you some, some, some of my own thoughts on that in just a few moments. But let's look at the issue of tithes and the issue of the law of release. Those are the other two aspects of how we help the poor. And you'll see that the tithe and the laws of release have to do with Sabbath. Just like the Jubilee has to do with 7 times 7, 49, the Sabbath of the Sabbaths. It was God's way to bless the poor as well as to provide rest for all of us. Let's look at it, a chapter, we're actually backing up to chapter 14, verse 22, and reading through 1523. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing, and we'll back up and, and divide it up. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever you, your appetite craves. Now, Taylor, don't take that to extremes. Uh, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, 
and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor. And out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired servant, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Amen. Gentlemen, uh, the reason this is so important for us is... uh, Obviously, the, the glory of God is involved in the way that we spend our money, the way that we make our sacrifices, and the way that we think about the poor. And when we look at our world today, uh, there is an enormous need. Uh, we often forget that we live in a little bubble. Uh, we live in a little isolated culture that is very, very wealthy. And uh, for those of you who uh, live in neighborhoods of choice in Memphis, it's even uh, choicier. 93% of the people in the world don't own a car, for example. Uh, If you make $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world. If you make $25,000 a year, you're just above the poverty line in the U.S. And you're in the top 10%. If you make 
$50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world. That's how poor the world is. And we have all sorts of problems that rarely cross our radar screen. We have 2 million children this year. That would be twice the size of Memphis and its suburbs. 2 million children, mostly girls, who will be traded in sex traffic this year. We have more slaves in the world than we've ever had in all periods of history combined, and many of them are sex slaves. Women work about two-thirds of the labor hours in the world, and they get paid less than 10% of the wages, and they own less than 1% of the property around the world. One of the key factors that I notice everywhere I go around the world where the gospel has not had impact is that the women are undoubtedly oppressed. There are about 10 million refugees that are refugees in foreign countries. There are about 24 million refugees that are refugees in their own country. So we have 33 million refugees. Darfur, Africa, is just one of them. The gap between the rich and the poor has been growing over the past 200 years. Not only do we have a poor world, but as the world has gotten richer, the gap between the rich and the poor has actually increased. Back in 1820, if you took the richest nations and compared them to the poorest nations of the world, there would be a factor of only 4 to 1. By the time you get to 1913, it's 11 to 1. By the time you get to 1950, it's 35 to 1. And in this past decade, it's gone to 75 to 1. There are many countries in the world where the gap between rich and poor is actually, over the past 10 years, been narrowing slightly. It's still a huge gap, but it's narrowing. There are some countries where that is not true. The worst country of gap between rich and poor would be China. Second is the U.S. Our gap continues to grow in the U.S., as we've had all the prosperity the last 30 years, the actual condition of the poor has not changed, changed. Actually, it's worsened slightly with all the extra cash that's been, well, until the big crisis of just a couple of years ago. So the condition of the poor in constant dollars in America has actually gone down while our condition has gone up. These are enormous problems, especially when you consider the joblessness in, in our city right here, we have a national joblessness rate of just under 10%. If you go down Memphis proper uh, among men 18 to 35, you're looking at somewhere north of 30% unemployment. We all know what young men do when they're unemployed. They do all kinds of things. And there's generational poverty that's embedded deeply into these families. And unless you've experienced poverty, unless you've tasted something of the disease of hopelessness. It's very difficult to understand what the solutions are. It's, it would be entertaining if it were not so tragic when we hear some of the suburban strategies for urban poverty. It, unless you've experienced or talked with people and debrief them about what really happens to your mind and what happens to your life, but when you've been brought up in poverty, we would have no idea. The average American church member gives 2.6% of his income. 
if you took all the church givers in America, in, uh, in, or if you took all the church members in America and got to the median gift, not the average gift, but the median gift. You know what I mean? If you have 1,000 gifts, the median gift is the 500th gift. That median gift is less than 1% among American churchgoers. And of that 2.5% average that's coming out of our income of $5.2 trillion, uh, only 2% of it goes overseas. Okay, so you with me? Of our income that goes overseas, we're only talking about five ten thousandths of our income, which would mean six pennies per day per person to fight this huge need worldwide. More of our money goes domestically, but not a whole lot of it. If only 2.5% of the income of church-going people, and our giving is slightly ahead of non-church-going people, there is a disease of stinginess in our country. And it's getting worse. We were not so bad during the Depression. We gave 3.3% during the Depression. And for those who make more money, it gets worse, not better. Well, let's look at our text and see why this is such a problem. And let me just say, as far as Memphis is concerned, those of you who have put an economic model to all of this, you would say that one of the things that has to happen in Memphis, because the disparity of income is so racially divided, where the African Americans seem to be making half uh, per capita than the whites are making, and their capital assets seem to be uh, similarly uh, uh, inequitable, that one of the things that has to happen, I hear you say as we, as we talk about economic development, is that there have to be new African-American-owned businesses. Do you know how many businesses or what percentage of the equity of businesses is owned by African-Americans who, who are over half of the city population? 1%. Less than 1%. So there, there's a huge job to be done. And we all know that the American economy is actually built on small businesses. In fact, uh, of the people who are very wealthy, an uh, enormous percentage of them, are, per, are almost half of them, are entrepreneurs. And so we know that that's how wealth gets generated. And the privileges of wealth, the training of wealth, the encouragement of wealth is generational. And if you think that you just woke up one morning and you thought about being an entrepreneur or you thought all these great ideas about how to make money and it had nothing to do with your parents or your grandparents, you, you are living in a cocoon. Some people grew up and their parents never talked to them about a bank account, never talked to them about interest rates. Your parents probably in this room talked about it all the time. I can remember my mom and dad going to their investment club. I was thinking as a little kid, what's an investment club? Why would somebody take a Tuesday night to go to an investment club? Well, they enjoyed investing in stocks. This is 50 years ago. Enjoyed investing in stocks as couples. They'd get together and talk about things like that. Can you imagine that? That's so foreign to anything that most of the people west of here have ever experienced. Their, their parents never had a business mentality and never talked about it. So you, you've been blessed with all this knowledge of how economy works. And the people who are poor do not. And furthermore, they've told, it's no use, you'll never make it. And you were always told, 
the American dream. If you want it, work for it, you can have it. They were never taught that. It makes all the difference in the world. Well, look what the biblical solution is. It's a long way from the solution we're applying. I'll tell you that. First of all, verses 22 through 29, you've got to let go of stuff. Let go of God's tithes. Let go of it. It doesn't belong to you. It's God's tithes. That's the reason that often the liturgists will say, now let us give God's tithes and our offerings. If you want to say you're giving your offerings, well, fine. Okay, you own your offerings. You don't even own your tithes. You just give it up. You just release it. Let go of it. It doesn't belong to you. That's the nature of a tithe. It belongs to the tenant. I mean, I'm sorry, it belongs to the owner. You're the tenant on the land. He owns the land. Now, you down here in Mississippi, I think you, you charge a third. If somebody lives on your land farms it, you get a third of the proceeds. And that's what God is doing. He's not charging you a third. He only charges you a tenth. And it's a continual reminder that you belong to him. It's not your property. Your body's not even your own. And you give it up. That's the reason that Malachi says, you're robbing God. Robbing God, they said? How can I be robbing God? You crazy? What do you mean I'm robbing God? He says you're withholding the tithes. That's theft. So if you are holding on, and some of you will say, well, is this really a New Testament principle? Well, you can look at Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you tithe your garden herbs. You're so scrupulous. Nothing wrong with that. But here's what's wrong with it. You're very scrupulous about that, but you're not so scrupulous about social justice. Mercy, love, faithfulness justice. He says, why don't you tend to the latter without neglecting the former? So he doesn't say neglect the tithe. He doesn't say it's not important. He just says there are some things that are weightier than that, like social justice. But do both, Jesus says. And every direction we get in the New Testament, every direction on giving, whether it's generosity, cheerfulness in giving, proportionate giving, all that's in the New Testament. Where do you think that came from? Deuteronomy. How do you give proportionally? Well, you start with the tithe. That's proportional. Your 10% is bigger than my 10%. It's proportional. So everything in the New Testament is lifted right out of the Old Testament. And there's the assumption, of course, that if we were in the Old Testament when we were children spiritually, being taught by the tutor of the law, then when we're a full-grown adults like in the New Testament and we have the life of the Spirit, well, we're done with childish things. Let me just say to you, why don't you make tithing your historical starting point and let's get on to adult living, which is the fullness of the Spirit in your life with free generosity, looking how you can serve and give yourself away and let's go beyond the tithe. Some of you are not tithing. You're thinking about, oh, I've got to get up toward the tithe. Don't do it gradually. It won't kill you. Do it immediately. It's called repentance. And get up to the minimum. Get there. I don't know how. You may have to sell a car, walk to work. I don't know what you're going to have to do. But stop robbing God. Your stuff is hot. And you need to get rid of it. And you say, well, i got some other creditors to pay. Well, which one do you want to stiff first, God or man? You better go negotiate with man because you got a problem with God. And so you're paying your creditors with God's stuff. I think that's called theft. So get your life in order. Then you can strategize how you can gradually get beyond the tithe. And I suggest one more percent per year. 
Just keep on going. And get athletic about it. Get joyful about it. And there's plenty of uses for those gifts beyond the tithe. That's what's being said here. And you'll see in Genesis 14, the tithe begins with this strange character, Melchizedek, who shows up after Abraham wins some battles. And what does Abraham do? He tithes to this priestly figure called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek offers wine and bread. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, we're told that Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're the children of Abraham. And he says, why did Abraham tithe to Melchizedek? Because the lesser tithes to the greater. In other words, Abraham was giving tribute to Melchizedek. He was making a statement that Melchizedek was greater than he. So we're the children of Abraham. We continue the tradition. We're showing that Jesus Christ is greater than we are, that we owe him tribute, that he is the king, and therefore we bring a tithe, a symbol of devotion and submission and tribute. We bring the tithe to him and put it at his feet. You say, how can I do that? Look at the next point. Bring it to the temple annually for worship. Where do I, how can I put it to his feet? Well, we're told here, bring it to the temple. You say, well, I don't have a temple. Yeah, you do. 1 Corinthians 3, you, plural, the church, are God's temple. And you have it in Ephesians 2. We're being built into a temple. And you have it in 1 Peter 1 that we studied a few years ago, that we're living stones making a temple. So it's the church. And you say, I had a guy one time tell me, you know, actually, Sandy, I make an awful lot of money. It wasn't here, by the way, in case you're thinking of names. But I had somebody say, I make an awful lot of money. And, you know, if I tithe, it just kind of swamped the church. And so I, I just don't, you know, <laughs> um, so I just don't give to the church. And I said, well, you know, that, that's understandable. So here, let me pray for you. And I put my hand on his shoulder. Here's how I pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you'll uh, bless my brother. And would you please reduce his income until he can afford to tithe to the church? <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious, uh, and I did pray that way, and I pray that way for you, that he'll reduce your income until you can afford to tithe uh, to the, God's temple. You bring it into the storehouse, storehouse at Malachi, were the side rooms of the temple. And why do we bring it to the temple? Well, because the church is the body of Christ. At the head of that body is whom? Jesus Christ. That's how you get it at his feet. That's how you bring it to Melchizedek, you bring it to his feet, and his feet are the church. Now, some of you will say, what about the parachurch? Well, let me say, there are a lot of churches represented here. There are a lot of extraordinarily useful parachurch organizations. They need partners. They need friends. They need prayers, and they need money. Let's get it to them. They're doing some good work. So you go to your church, I'll go to mine, and let's support these agencies with tithe money, an as, a, a portion of the tithe. How much of the money in our churches is even getting outside the door? How much of us are actually looking outside beyond as a whole group, a family, taking our family estate, the church budget, and moving it toward those who are poor in this community? That's number one. Number two, we just said, let's get beyond the tithe, gentlemen. There's some people in this room who could probably live on 10% instead of giving their 10%. I'm serious. We could live on 10% of what we make. Let's, let's change our mentality. 
And let's find intelligent ways to give if you need help. There's some people in this very room who'd be glad to help you. Uh, there are, our church supports about 60 agencies and people in town, but you have some large ones that are very knowledgeable, a Memphis Leadership Foundation, and all their matrix of, of agencies. I think I see somebody right back there that can help you with that. There's Howard Eddings and Larry Lloyd. You have uh, Joanne Ballard and, and Effie Ballard Johnson at Neighborhood Christian Center who have places all over the city where they're helping the poor. Uh, you have Ken down at Streets and you have Steve Nash at Advanced Memphis. Just on and on it goes. And you can just call our Eddie Foster. He's our director of Mission to Memphis uh, on our staff. You can email him. I think it's eddie.foster at 2pc.org. Uh, and get whatever information you need. You need to get connected. Get your church connected. Get yourself connected. Get your family connected uh, with opportunities to serve the poor in this city. And there are some great opportunities in this city to do so. Bring it in to the temple annually for worship. And there, notice what they did with it. First of all, they feasted. They made themselves really happy. They ate their tithe. Now, scholars say there's no way they ate the whole tithe. 10% of their proceeds from their fields, no way they could eat that in a week of a festival. But they ate some of it. And some of our churches say, well, you know, we can't spend money on ourselves. Oh, yes, you can. Uh, your worship services are feasts. And they cost money. Do it. It's important. Your fellowship dinners, they may cost money. Maybe they're subsidizing your church. Fine. There's your, there's your precedent. And notice that when you gather, you fear the Lord. You do this that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So bring the tithe in. Celebrate. Worship above all things. And then we're going to see that a tithe also helps the poor. Look at B, verses 27 through 29. You bring, it, you bring the tithe into the towns triennially for relief. So really there are two tithes. Some say there are three. We won't get into that. But there's a tithe every three years in your local communities. You don't bring it to Jerusalem. You bring it to your community. And apparently if you'll tithe every three years, you can provide for your poor. So you can see it looks like there's already 13 and a third percent that's being required of the Israelites. Some would say 23 and a third because there seem to be a tithe for the Levites and a tithe for celebration and a triennial tithe for the poor. So if 10% seems a lot, it looks like it was more than that for the Israelite. What do you do with it? Number one, you feed the Levite. That is, if you pay preachers and teachers, that's what the tithe is for. Why? You need the law of God. You need the grace of God. You need the gospel of God. You need to learn the word of God. And when Nehemiah came back after the exile, he was angry because the Levites were out in the field because people weren't paying tithe and they had to let the Levites go and get them back to working in the farms. And Nehemiah was very angry about that because they obviously weren't tithing and weren't providing for the teaching office of the church. Secondly, though, look at this, feed the dispossessed. Even the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, those who are marginalized, take care of them. And then look at... 29b, where he says, and we shall be blessed, that the Lord your God may bless you. Gentlemen, when you take care of the poor, guess who's taking care of you? You end up being the Lord's poor, and he will take care of you. And you say, well, how's that supposed to work? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that it does, because he says so. I will bless you. Well, guess what you do if, what happens if you don't take care of the poor? It'll be the opposite. 
just as he warns in 27 and 28, uh, chapters 27 and 28, I will curse you. And nations that don't take care of the poor, communities that don't take care of the poor, are cursed. God really cares about these people. And you see, Jesus did when he came to the earth. Well, let's look at the second basic principle when you pick up with chapter 15. Let go of God's sabbatical gifts for the poor. You let go of the tithe, also let go of the sabbatical gifts. And what are those gifts? You release loans. You forgive loans. This word release, shemitah, let me spell that for you in an English transliteration, S-H-E-M, Mary, I-T-T-A, shemitah. That's called release. And there are several things we release. First of all, we, we release loans. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. If you look at the world strategy, obviously one of the things that needs to be done is a strategic canceling of debts. Anybody who's working in world economy with the third world knows this is true and they teach it consistently. That some of the poor in this world are so poor they have such a burden of debt, everything they make just goes back to pay interest and it's this vicious cycle. They can never get out of it. And if the first world wants to rejuvenate the third world and enable them to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient and participate in the world economy, there's got to be a cancellation of debts. Well, gentlemen, I want to say the same thing has to happen here. We have bankruptcy laws, and that's the purpose of them. Cancel debts and let the poor person get a new start and get the engine going again. And we need to use the bankruptcy principle around the world. It's there for a reason. It's not only merciful, it's just. And it's smart. It's wise. It's a way to help the economy. But we as individuals need to be willing to let some things go as well and forgive loans. The loans toward the poor. And every seventh year, they were to be forgiven. And Moses says here, if the poor needs a loan from you in the sixth year, don't you dare say, oh, Sabbath year is next year. I better not loan because it will all be canceled next year. No, you give to your brother. And what's interesting in this whole text, if you look at verses 7 through 11, you'll find the word your or you about 31 times. And basically, this is what Moses is saying. These are not the poor and the needy. These are your poor and your needy. In other words, Moses is saying here, poor belong to us. They are part of our communal family. And you don't just call them the poor, the needy, those people. No, they're our people. That's the point that's being made here. Now I know we're dealing with the church here. The church and the nation are coterminous. This is, these are God's people. So you'd say, well, that just applies to the church. Well, okay, if you want to start there, that's fine. The church is not just people who go to your church. They're people of faith throughout this city. Many of them are poor. Okay? What's your strategy? If, if you're concerned about the church, what's your strategy to help the church? And some of the poor that are being helped by the names I just gave and 60 other agencies I could give, a lot of those are church people that are poor. They're our poor. And we're to be making loans to help them get business started. We're to be helping them learn how to start businesses. We're to be helping them learn how to work. And we're to give our money. And when they can't pay it back, we're to cancel the loan. 
That's what's being taught here, it seems to me, in economic justice. That's how you deal with the poor. Now notice what the reason for that. Number one, the Lord's name will be honored. The Lord has proclaimed a release. Now in the Near East, kings would often proclaim a release of loans when they were coronated. But there's no precedent in ancient Near Eastern history of any king having a regular cancellation of loans. But our king does. He's king of the Holy Land. And he says every seven years we're going to celebrate. And people are going to be set free from their financial burdens. And he says poverty will be eliminated. Verse 4, there will be no poor among you. Now have you noticed in Acts chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit came in fullness and we were living together as God's people, what is said about us? There were no poor among us. Right out of Deuteronomy. What the church intended to do from its very inception was to be the real Israel and to have economic justice among us and to have distribution among us so that everybody had a sufficient lifestyle, to have a minimum wage that was not just legal, but that provided families income so that they could actually live on it. And if in your business you're paying the national minimum wage, I'd like for you to think again. I'd like for you to look at the numbers that are provided for us that will provide the household for the household of the person working for you, food on the table, roof over the head, transportation to work, schooling for their children, clothes for their children, etc. And that will be a different number than the minimum wage. I'd like to challenge you to get beyond the minimum wage, to get to a minimum for someone at least to hit the poverty line and figure out what that is. I know you'll lose some money over it, but you won't lose any more sleep. And that's a whole lot better. This is what's being said to us. Poverty will be eliminated. This is the ideal. We'll come back to it in a minute. He says God's people will prosper. He says for the Lord your God will bless you. So you think, you think that you can outgive God? You think that you can help the poor more than, more than God can help you? Think again. Don't think that you'll, you'll lose on this. Secondly, after forgiving loans, look, you make loans. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, here's what you shall do. You shall not harden your heart, shut your hand, or close your eyes. Look at that. Heart, hand, eyes. They all clamp down on their money. And you shall not clamp down with your heart or your hand or your eyes on the poor. You shall release. You shall not clamp down. And then he says, here's what you shall do. You shall open your hand. You shall guard your heart and not think evil toward them. And you shall advance the downtrodden. Folks, let me just give a quick example. And I, before I give this one, I, I want to make a couple of caveats. Uh, I'm not a politician. I don't aspire to be one. And for that reason, I know I don't know all the ins and outs of political issues. Uh, but I've noticed some things about this school crisis that I'd like to address. I also know that I live in the city, and therefore you, you could say I'm biased. Uh, my children also went to private school, so you could say you don't know anything what you're talking about. All I can say is I smell a rat. And when a preacher smells a rat, watch out. He's going to burst open and he may not always make perfect sense, but he smells a rat. And there's a rat. 
and I want to identify a rat when I see one. And if that rat is gnawing on you, I suggest you get rid of him. Here's what I see. I see two school systems, one with 105,000 people, one with 45,000 people, one with a billion-dollar budget, one with a $300,000 budget. And I see one, the smaller one, that is made up of families who make more money and who has schools whose test scores are higher. And demographics show that your test scores are almost always higher with the in average income of the homes in that district. It's consistent everywhere across the country. Income leads to higher scores for reasons I was just stating a moment ago. It has to do with hope and hopefulness, and it's consistent across the country. One system has higher scores, and also their racial consistency is about 70% white, and the other one is about 85% black. So I notice these things. And I notice that the one that's out here wants to take a move to shield themselves in a special school district. I say, now, why would they do that? I wonder why they would do that. And I listen to private conversations that are reported to me secondhand. They probably wouldn't go on if I were in the room because somebody knows I might blow a top. But here's what I hear said among some leaders. Well, we want to preserve our way of life. Do you know what that is? That is the 2011 version of 1963. Make no mistake about it. And if you are participating in that, you need to let go of that real fast. And if you have any influence on this, you need to address this at the risk of your own popularity real fast. Let me tell you what the heart of a Christian suburbanite in Memphis would be. Can I just begin to describe? I don't know the whole thing. I've only got my own heart. But can I just give you a little bit of the piece of what I think a Christian heart would do in looking at this city when an opportunity like this arises. Can we help you in some way? Is there something that we can mobilize our people to do? Now, our parents, they all voluntarily pay for their football uniforms. And some of them coach our junior high teams. You have to hire coaches, don't you? Why? Well, because you don't have any fathers around. Instead of casting stones about the difference, oh, well, we don't pay and you do and it'll cost us more, would you do a little demographic research? Can we help you? Maybe some of our parents can come coach your teams. Maybe some of our teams would love to raise some money with a special drive and buy your kids some uniforms. Gentlemen, that's a Christian attitude. And would you like for us to help manage some of your schools? Can we give you some of our resources? Oh, you want us to take the whole thing? What a fabulous opportunity. To take one of the biggest problems in the state of Tennessee, and for me, as a county school board participant, a member, to have an opportunity to try to bless one of the biggest problems in the state of Tennessee, you're going to give me that opportunity? Gentlemen, if someone gave me that opportunity, I would be tempted to resign as senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church. I, I don't know that I could resist it. And yet, what do I hear from people who go to churches out here? Some of you are in those churches. Gentlemen, please, I plead with you. We are making, and I say we, because I, I live in a neighborhood of choice. And that's the we I mean. 
the we of people who live in neighborhoods of choice, whose kids go to good schools. We are totally blowing it. This is every bit as bad as 1963, when white churches wouldn't let black people in their churches. This is every bit as bad as that. It's just more subtle. Something has to be done, and it needs to be done right now. And Dr. King said, there is such a thing as too late. And let's not let it be too late. We've got about five or six weeks to work on this thing. Now, I don't know whether the city should surrender or not. It seems to me that maybe they should, prompted by the act taken by the county school board. And everybody's in a mess. There's not sufficient time to make a plan. Why? Because the county threatened to seal themselves off and build a wall 50 feet high. So I realize, I don't know what the proper answer is to get this thing done right, but somebody needs to encourage some people to talk behind the scenes and start loving instead of hating. And it seems to me that people who believe in the Bible should be the ones who started out. No matter what your business partner thinks about you, and no matter what your customers think about you, no matter what your daddy thinks about you, let's reverse the curse, gentlemen. And let's trust God to bless our city. So, Thank you. I, I appreciate the encouragement. I, I, I listened to this debate last night, and like I said, I don't know much, but I know now I know, I know 50 minutes worth of debate. That's what I know. I just wanted to cry, to be honest with you. So how could we not only be in a financial mess and an educational mess, how could we be in such a moral mess after 50 years of learning? How could we observe what we've observed in our country and in our city and pull this stunt again? What has happened to us? And especially, why can't the church rise up and make itself clear on this? So if, if I've obliterated some nice political principles. <laughs> Please, go ahead and send me an email. I, I want to know. I, I'm challenging you because I really do want to know. And if you send me an email and, and you're off base, expect a pushback. Uh, you know, strong memo is going to follow this talk today, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but if, if you've got something that I'm, I'm missing, I really want to know it. But I'd say here, just like he says, don't harden your heart. Your hand is going to follow your heart. And if you think you have some way of life that is not supposed to be shared, I think you're suffering the disease of not reading Bible very much or not having your heart open to the meaning of the Bible. He says you shall not harden your heart and you shall open your hand. And your lifestyle is not only to be shared, it's to be changed. And you don't control who comes into this city. And you don't control who comes into your neighborhood. If you try to control that, who do you think you are? You're God. God controls who comes into your city and who comes into your neighborhood. And here's your job. Treat them lovingly as a neighbor. They're your people. As soon as they move into your neighborhood, those are your people. There's your way of life. Right there. They're in your neighborhood. That's your way of life. Get on with your life. Don't try to create some racist form of life and protect it for heaven's sakes. Okay, notice what he says here, even about those who would commit themselves to slavery because they have no way to eat. And there was a provision for that. 
And you'd have to notice, isn't it amazing that this provision for slavery 3,500 years ago was so merciful and the provisions for slavery we had uh, in this country were so cruel, so monstrous. You take a pr some relatively primitive uh, society and you have this provision for people to fall back into slavery for a season. And they only remain slaves if they want to. You notice that? You want to be a slave. You love your master and his family. You want to be part of them. Put your ear right here. We'll put it all in it, and that'll seal it for us. That's our symbol that, that you're part of us, and you're, you're in our household. And then there are rules for how to treat your slaves. Now, I know that may sound outrageous to us, but in the culture 3,500 years ago, that was radically transforming and liberating. And look what Christians did here just a few centuries ago. We could say even a few decades ago. And you have a great Presbyterian theologian, a great one that, whose, whose writings I appreciate in the 19th century, but who wrote something like this in New York Herald uh, back in 1850. He says, those who support the abolition of slavery are atheists, socialists, communists, and red republicans. If we put all races, sexes, and colors upon a footing of equality, the devil and his angels will be jubilant. James Henley Thornwell. I'm embarrassed to say. People who are very good theologians, even read their Bibles, can just distort justice. God wants justice. We not only liberate them, we elevate them, and we celebrate their liberty. Now lastly, let go of God's sacrificial offerings. So you have tithes, you have loans, you have offerings. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. No compromise. Uh, no, you shall do no work with these, nor shear the firstborn. Give them to the Lord. No blemish. If it has any blemish, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So you give your best offerings to the Lord for the sake of the poor. Now, gentlemen, let me close with this. We've got two minutes. What do you do with all this? Well, I've already suggested that all of us need to get properly informed and connected to the ministry to the poor. John Perkins, whom some of you know, who's written and spoken on this broadly, he says there are three R's. Relocation, redistribution, racial reconciliation. Relocation, redistribution, reconciliation. If we're really going to make a difference, we're going to do what Nehemiah did when he came and saw the people abandon the city because it was broken down and they were all out there in the suburbs. And he made some of them move to the city and there were volunteers who moved to the city. Let me tell you what's going to happen in Memphis when this text gets a hold of the heart of the church. We're going to have an army of people who relocate in the city with all of its problems to bless every one of our neighborhoods. Relocation. There's going to be redistribution we're going to realize this is not just the charity or generosity of your heart. It's actually justice to give to the poor and provide for them a lifestyle that enables them to eat and to have jobs and to have a roof over their heads and to have peace in their homes and to have police protection and all the rest. And we're going to adopt every neighborhood and we're going to insist that every one of them have peace. And peace in the Old Testament means all of these things, including a good education. We're going to adopt the city and we're going to move resources into it as we need to. Just as Nehemiah said, some of y'all just need to move to the city, and they volunteered to go, even with all this danger and its brokenness. And that's exactly what the church is going to do when this text gets hold of our hearts. 
We're going to relocate. We're going to get a redistribution of who runs businesses, who owns businesses, who's making money off of businesses. Because we're going to realize that's God's economy. And then we're going to have racial reconciliation going on at the same time. And we're going to be actively involved in it. And we're going to watch our motives and our statements and our actions very carefully to see how much of it is based upon historic, racist attitudes. And what's going on there right now in our city is a resurgence of historic, racist attitudes. And God's people are going to, going to denounce that in their behavior, their words, and in their hearts. So this is the way you take the release. You let go of stuff that is self-centered, that is based on your flesh, protecting your own butt, and you start looking out for other people. That's the release. And that's going to cost you money. But let me tell you what's going to happen about money. God's going to give you all you need. I'll give you what's sufficient for the day. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. You're my people. You take care of the poor. You'll notice it says in verse 11, the poor will always be with you. In verse 4, it says you will have no poor. What's the meaning of that? Ideally, you're going to work toward having no poor. Really, because of sin, you're always going to have the poor, so you're always going to do this until you see Jesus. When you see the new king, and he's giving us the new heavens and the new earth, verse 4 will be true. There will be no poor among us. That's the fulfillment of all things. Let's begin to live it out right now. I believe that's what Deuteronomy 15 is saying, whether I oversleep or not. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. We admit that we don't deserve to get to hear it again because we've broken it so many times, beginning with this speaker today. And I ask your forgiveness for my many sins of hoarding possessions, of ignoring the poor, of going about my way blithely and even promoting policies and behaviors that disadvantage poor people who are already broken and under-resourced. Please grant me repentance. Grant us repentance. Make us your army today. In Jesus' name, amen.